I love Gen Z. <laughs> and I don't think I love it because I'm a part of the generation. I just genuinely think we're a very funny, um, interesting, bold group of people. And I think we kind of just grew up on being able to share whatever thought we had, you know, in a second on Twitter, on Facebook, Tumblr, whatever it was. So now that we're kind of coming into our own and coming of age, we're entering workspaces. A lot of us are graduating college or have graduated college. The workforce is getting that energy. Zach's video here from Boston Speaks Up. That's the voice of Miranda Perez, today's very lively guest. She is a cross-topic multimedia journalist that I met a few years back. She was writing bylines in The Nation, contributing to Boston Business Journal while she was still undergrad. Uh, Now, fast forward to today, a few years, she's at HBCU Founders Initiative, which is a nonprofit org that's engaging rising students and alumni from historically black colleges and universities and helping them pursue their entrepreneurship pursuits. Um, So we get into that. We also get into Miranda's background and just all the challenges she's faced in life and ultimately triumphed. Um, She's also, she's a young Latina Gen Z. So she's got a fresh perspective that we haven't had enough on the Boston Speaks Up podcast. And I'm just really excited to share that with the world. So I hope you all enjoy. Cheers. Silicon Valley Bank is a proud sponsor of Boston Speaks Up. For more than 35 years, Silicon Valley Bank has helped innovative companies and their investors move bold ideas forward fast. SVB provides targeted financial services and expertise through its offices at 53 State Street in downtown Boston and in Newton and innovation centers around the world. With commercial, international, and private banking services, SVB helps address the unique needs of Boston's innovators. Learn more at svb.com. Zach Servideo here from Boston Speaks Up, and I'm here with Miranda Perez of HBCU Founders Initiative. Hi, Miranda. Hi, thank you for having me. Thank you for being here. Uh, I very much value um, your sharp pen in the world and have over time <laughs> as we've uh, established a great relationship i i value your friendship and and i'm really grateful to sort of share your story um with the boston sort of startup community and beyond and you know really really appreciate you taking the the time today before we kind of unpack uh the Manda, miranda perez story let's ground folks in your role today which is super fascinating and, and beautifully purposeful. Um, you're, um, as, as folks you know, probably know, uh, h- historically black colleges and universities, HBCU, uh, you are at the HBCU Founders Initiative. And I'd love for you in your words to share with, with me and, and with listeners what, what that is and what your role entails. Yeah, so the, the role itself, I'm a program coordinator and we're a nonprofit organization. A nonprofit arm of a venture capital firm, NextCube, based in the Bay Area. Um, 60% is the rough estimate that I know. (laughs) Being a month in, 60% of their portfolio companies have always been women or folks from marginalized communities, whether they be people of color and other marginalized identities. So as they were thinking of initiatives that they could do to specifically help Black founders who don't always have access to friends and family rounds, which is why 
they would turn down a lot of investment in black founders. They just didn't have enough capital yet or enough runway to get that investment from Next Cubed. And they hated to turn them down. So they were like, well, what can we do? And in response to the whole like racial unrest post George Floyd, they're like, well, we need to do something that's specifically catered toward black youth and getting this together. So the focus ended up being on historically black colleges and universities because those schools also, just as well as like people of color are marginalized in the tech and startup space, those universities and colleges are too. There's not really accelerator programs run there. Maybe you'll get a hackathon here and there, but there's no like spirit of entrepreneurship that's encouraged. It's there on campus, it's brewed, but these students don't have the opportunity to like grow it. So that's how the program started. And as a program coordinator, I help build out the curriculum. I help, you know, network with speakers and bringing in folks to help teach these students. And then I also help them as well. And they're student and recent alum, but I help them more so on the media training side. So I use my journalism background to help them get their personal branding together, get ready for press, build out their websites, their elevator pitches, everything that you could think of that you need in media. So that way, as a first-time founder or an early-stage founder, instead of hiring a PR agency or you know not having the money to, you get it here in the accelerator program. So it's a great time. I'm an HBCU grad myself, so it feels really good to like be right back into a space where I'm giving back to the universities that gave back to me. Amazing. Uh, really, really helpful, tight overview there. Which, um, which, which school did you go to? And then I'm curious, is that partly how you connected in with this group or is it? Yeah. Is, yeah. So I went to Clark Atlanta University. It's right next to Spelman College and Morehouse College, which are a little bit more known. I think they're more buzzy. They catch the ears more. So Spelman, Morehouse and Clark overlap. And I got introduced to the nonprofit because one of the coordinators there, who was a Spelman alum herself, was trying to just get some press from me and, you know, just tell me what they had going on and look for story opportunities. So I fell in love with the organization because of my own history in tech and startups and wanting to be in the space and knowing I needed more resources because I came into the space in an unconventional way. So I worked with her a little bit on the press side of things. And then I saw they were hiring and I was like, oh, I was like, let me just try. Let me just try for this. Because I knew it was a place where it was so aligned with like my personal self and my work self. So I couldn't not explore the opportunity. And then I did. And then I got it. So now I'm here. Nice. It, do you feel like the... Talk a bit about the experience that you had leading up to this role. And mm -hmm. some of the things like your presence on social media, the types of... Uh, stories and, and and journalism you were doing as you kind of gravitated towards startups. And I mean, especially for young, we have a lot of young listeners first time or like, a, you know, aspiring founders or, you know, entrepreneurs generally put like folks that, you know, maybe they're writers or folks that you know, want to bet on themselves, like you bet on yourself. Yeah. And how much was your, that digital resume living, breathing sort of bylines that you had, social media presence. Like, can you talk a bit about how you feel you put yourself in a good position to get what what is a really impressive role but for someone that's a couple of years out of college? Yeah, for sure. And I think funny enough, my journalism background to them is a plus. I think what's more impressive to them was all the stuff that I did on campus because I was in like student government and leading a bunch of clubs. So I knew like I wasn't only a student who had experienced the ecosystem. I knew how to communicate with all types of people at HBCs. And that's really what they needed too. Like somebody who could get down in the dirt and get like our hard to reach overworked admin. Um, so I think that was one of the more impressive things. But 
digital resume wise, I definitely spent all my time covering tech and startups and covering it in the lens of marginalized founders. So if I could ever not interview like the stereotypical like tech pro, like I went to MIT and, you know, I made this company, then, oh yeah, I wanted to talk about it because we've heard that story so many times and we still don't get to hear a lot of these, even though entrepreneurship is up for black founders or founders of color, they don't get a lot of press because they're not making a lot of money in these rounds. And, you know, so there's, there's always just like a barrier to entry. And I was breaking that barrier to entry. So I was writing a lot before uh, HBCFI. I was at Built-In. I was at Insider. I've done like some on-air stuff on MSNBC. Always talking about this, whether I'm talking about my experience at HBCU, you know, navigating this tech startup landscape as a woman of color, as a journalist of color, all has led me to gain the expertise that I needed to execute this role. Because a lot of these founders are in the space that I was in when I was graduating where I didn't know anything about this world at all. And if an alum hadn't pulled me in and I wasn't open-minded to it, then I wouldn't have been doing this. I probably would have been doing politics and social justice writing, which is what I was doing before this, hence like my focus on equity in the tech and startup space. But I love it. And I, I feel so smart. I feel very challenged. And I didn't know I could feel this way had it not been exposed to me. So I try to bring that same energy and that same be that same resource for the people in the program. For listeners right now, what kind of listeners in particular should look into the sort of the 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 accelerator program you run, mm-hmm. and what should they do? What action should they take? Where should they go uh, to to explore potentially getting involved? Yeah. So you can go to hbcfi.org and learn all about the program. Even if you're not an HBCU student or recent alum who wants to start a company, which is ideally where we're at. Very early stage, idea stage folks. You know, we we take them to be at the end of the eight-week program, ideally ready to be in the space to get investment and to approach investors. But if you don't fit into that bucket of being the founder, then we do need a lot of mentors. We need a lot of people to just provide feedback to teach. So if you have something that you think would be interesting to any type of founder, any early stage founder, founders of color, they really need that resource. And even if it's not, you know, a lesson, even if it's a a word, you know, some motivational speaking that you can offer your time, you can also sign up on the site to do that too. And then we just reach out. We sign you up for our great newsletter that they produce. Um, the marketing team produces. That's honestly how I found out a lot about the program too. So it's a very helpful pipeline of information when you check out the site and just give us your email. We won't spam. It's like a once a quarter <laughs> newsletter. Cool. Miranda, we'll have to chat more about this too. I'd I'd certainly love to raise my hand and get involved and and doing yeah. some, some mentoring. That'd be cool. That's one of my favorite things to do. I'm doing a little bit less of it at Endicott College right now. I used to do some of it at Techstars. So it'd be cool. And it'd be another excuse to talk to you and be connected with you. So we'll have to talk about that. Yeah. So great. That's some... We need so, it. Yeah. Okay, cool. Cool. Uh, maybe we can we can chat with the Value Creation Labs Consortium too and see what other mm-hmm. folks might want to get involved. Awesome. Uh, let's, let's talk about the unique experience um, and just your your background that sort of has you know blossomed into you being um, what I, what I would call like a really interesting dynamic sort of uh, unicorn um, in sort of the digital media tech space. Like, um, and I mean that from you know from just all my experience um, seeing the range that you have. Like, I I'm 37 years old. I don't meet a, I don't meet a ton of people my age that have sort of the range you have. So I think it's 
it says a lot about your upbringing. It says a lot about your your soft skills and just what's inside you. And 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 you have um, you know you have a great work ethic, um, but you also have like a, an incredible ability to deliver like quality um, work in a lot of different ways. Um, where like talk about like you didn't just grow up in one place. Um, talk about your talk about your childhood a bit and you know your your mom um and your relationship with her like raising you know raising you and and your brother yeah awesome so i grew up in chicago and uh, so many people think i'm from atlanta because at this point that's like all i claim is my college experience so i'm not from atlanta southern belle midwest midwestern woman first uh, but grew up in chicago very inner city moved around a whole bunch because my mom had us really young my mom had me at 16 and then my brother at 20. so that's like the household i grew up in and then eventually like as my parents split and like my brother from my stepfather, my second father, then it's like everybody just kept getting into other relationships. And I have a very large family. I'm the oldest of six, all blended, blended siblings. But I grew up with my brother and my mom mainly. And I love my dad, both my dads, but my second dad, I tell him all the time, like mom was basically a single mom because it was always just an argument or this or that, you know. And something they always told me was like, it's very easy for a man to like pick up and leave. It's like harder. Like you don't often see you know, women walk out and not that my second dad did by no means, but it's like, it's easier to go live that next life for them where I'm with you every day was something my mom was very big on. Um, so it was hard. It was so hard. And I commend her so much because I had a moment in college where I had just turned 21 and I was like, Oh my God, like my mom had two kids at, at that age. And I'm like, that's crazy. Like, I just want to go to class and like, I barely want to go to the cap to feed myself. So I commend my mom so much because she was strong and like just trying to deal with, you know, co-parenting and relationships. And it was like a lot of heavy stuff young. So we grew up like it wasn't horrible by any means, but there were times where like things weren't paid for. Things were just like stretched really thin. And there was like a lot of financial instability. And she was trying to combat that as much as she could. So we moved around the city a lot to either like save money on rent or it's like if the neighborhood that we lived in was getting really bad, which is like we didn't do anything anyway. Like I didn't grow up and like I could walk to the park or something like that. Like it was too bad to do that. So we we're always moving to like slightly less bad neighborhoods, mm. um, which was fine because I was just always around a very nice melting pot of black and brown people. So I was always meeting people, always exploring things. I think that's why I'm very good to socialize because I had to a lot of the time. So that's how I grew up. Stood at the same school, though. That is one thing she said. She kept consistent. Always the same, like, middle elementary school. And then in high school, I'd moved around just as much, but still stood at my same high school. So I ha I think I'm used to adapting env environments. And that's not... That's, like, a soft skill that was, like, um like a survival yeah. skill that I think I gained over time. Because it's just I always had to, like, move around. So I think now that's why I'm like such a busy body person. And that's also why I adapt to change so fast. Or mm -hmm. I think I'm quick to like adapt in a new role. Cause it's like, I just get it. Cause I'm like, okay, go like life doesn't stop because things are weird or uncomfortable or like mm -hmm. a rough transition. It's like actually getting worse. Like you have to like keep up with life more in those times. So I think all that transferred into like my work ethic and also just like what I want for myself. Like I work very hard cause I want stability. I tell people all the time, like I crave it. So I think a lot of people are like, you're so young, like you don't need to work that long or as much. And I'm like, oh, I really do. Like I fear falling into an unstable place every day. And I know I'm nowhere close, but that like childhood trauma 
is just it lingers and i'm like i cannot be in a place where like i don't have money for it. i don't have this so i'm like big on savings and budgeting and like investing and i'm trying to do like all these things to be like the super adult like the most mm-hmm. responsible adult ever um which is like cool because people are like wow you're a firecracker like you're amazing but then i'm like a little bit of a trauma response but it's working in my benefit so mm-hmm. i'm not mad at it there you go. I like that you went into adaptability. I was going to bring that mm-hmm. up because you moved around a lot and it's awesome. Your mom like kept you consistently in the same schools while moving, but it, yeah. where my mind was going a bit too. And I, I find that later in life, my parents split and and when I've talked to people about, and it's, it's hard at any point you're at in your life, but I'm a big silver linings playbook guy. And my silver mm-hmm. lining, when I go to my playbook and I open up to the page, um, you know, multiple moms, multiple dads, you know, just parents with, uh, there's this, so the adaptability gets applied there too, where it's like, even just learning how to accept, embrace, empathize with like dad number two, like, I'm, I'm just yeah. I'm curious if you can speak a bit. Cause I think there's a lot, there's a lot of lessons you learned in there because a lot of it, you know, the, we live in a knowledge economy. You're certainly in that economy. I mean, you're, you're not an engineer. You're you're sort of a, you're a writer. Your 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 mind is is what is being adapted in all these you know media trainings, et cetera, that you do at HBCU five. Talk a bit about like because your ability to manage and 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 connect with people and adapt and be a chameleon a bit to the person that's in front of you. I imagine that came from a lot of that where you had to adapt just with the adult personalities around you growing up. So talk a little bit about yeah. your relation your relationship. <laughs> plural with your dads yeah yeah so my dad so we didn't my dad and my mom were together maybe like for two years after i was born or something so they were like 18 at that point just like a super young relationship so i i don't remember them being together at all i see pictures together and i'm like that's cool but it didn't hurt me like how it hurt like when i hear some people talk about like oh my parents got divorced at like nine i was nine ten like they're hurt I didn't experience that hurt. I'm just like, oh, they weren't together. Have my second dad, love him. He's a super great guy. He said like he fell in love with me before he fell in love with my mom. Um, and he was like, that's kind of why I was dating her for longer than I would have because I loved you. <laughs> so yeah. I was I was always a daddy's girl. Uh, I think for both of them, but like definitely for him too. Because when my dad's presence swayed and my dad got incarcerated, that was my dad. Like it went from me calling him by his first name to like one day I just started calling him dad. My mom said like, nobody encouraged me. Nobody like poached it out of me. Um, so that was like really cool. And I didn't think anything of it. Cause it was just, I didn't know any better. Like I didn't, I was the oldest, so I didn't see any other dynamics. So I was like, well, that's just my dad too. Um, it's like managing the relationship between both of them. Wasn't easy. I was like a shy And that's so crazy to think. I was a shy, quiet child. Like I was pretty introverted if I wasn't with like my immediate family. But I think it's because I had a lot going on. Like when you talk about like managing adult personalities, it's like my mom was with like a new person. Then, you know, we have my brother. They're great. But then, you know, my dad, before he was incarcerated, got, you know, somebody else pregnant. So now I have a sister on the way, but then my dad's not here. So now I'm managing two like Mm. step parents or co-parents, however the dynamic is, right? then I'm still just managing the relationship with my dad while he's incarcerated and nobody knows how to do that. Nobody's instructing me how to manage that or make it. What was that like? (laughs) Crazy. It was so Did you visit him? Yeah, Yeah. I did. I did. Uh, I visited him like 
when he was first incarcerated, he was just like downtown Chicago. There was like, it's like a really nice skyscraper that doesn't look like a prison. Mm -hmm. And then when you walk in and it's like, oh, wow. Um, So I did that like mainly on the weekends with my grandma. So his mom or like maybe some days after school. Um, And like over time, I just didn't. It was fine, but like it was just really uncomfortable. I was still like a little girl. How old? Like were you? I was starting to. Um, I was little when he got incarcerated. I think he got incarcerated when like oh four, maybe like oh three, yeah. oh five, maybe yeah. max. So I was yeah. like four or five years old. So it's like I didn't know what was going on. Mm-hmm. But as I got older, like I just remember like always having like an uncomfortable relationship with police. Like I didn't feel safe with police because they were mm-hmm. always like crying at me or crying like you know they have to like check you but they're doing their job they have to check you before you go in to visit somebody but it's like i'm a little girl this is scary Mm -hmm. um like that was awkward but then it was also kind of cool because like i met so many cool people like one of my dad's friends like it was like one of his cellmates i remember he caught me how to he taught me how to count change because i was he was asking me what i was learning in school um and i was little so i was learning the difference between like a quarter and like a dime or whatever and I remember my dad had to talk to my grandma about something like important. So I was with this guy and he was teaching me how to count change so I could go to the vending machine by myself. But it's like such a fond memory because wow. I remember him sitting and teaching. Like it was like a really good relationship that I had with this person who was my dad's friend. Mm-hmm. So stuff like that, like it wasn't all bad or all scary. It was like pretty cool. But later on, he got moved around. So he went to Indiana and that was like the type of prison that you see in like a movie. Mm-hmm. like barbed wire fence and i was like uh i was like i just i can't i was like i think i'm at my limit i think i was probably like in middle school at that point so yeah. my mom always told me she was like if you ever don't want to go like you don't have to go mm-hmm. you know so don't feel forced to so i told her i didn't want to but i didn't really want anybody on my dad's side of the family to feel away so she told them that i just couldn't go anymore mm-hmm. and like took that bullet um, so then everybody kind of had like a oomph towards her, but she was just protecting my best interest. So then that was just like a mother daughter, like, thank you, mom. Like you have my back type thing. Cause it was really uncomfortable. So he was still sending like letters and we were talk kind of like not as much. I just like, as I got older, didn't want to deal with that. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know how to, and like I, my parents weren't teaching me how to, like they were perfectly fine with me just being with my stepdad. And I think my second dad, and I think that's, like poor management on their part because like my dad also needed support and love in that situation and he didn't get it because life just doesn't stop but that is the the unfortunate way the prison system works it's like it was working in its favor because you know it's like his kids don't we can't go see him or we have to get driven like we're still little kids um we can't you know if he calls and we don't want to answer, it's like, nobody's going to make us. But I kind of like somebody should have, like somebody should have thought about how he was feeling and like what he needed. And now that I have the closer relationship with him that I do, I feel bad for being like angry as a kid. Cause like, I didn't realize that he was sad too. Like he was, he didn't want to be there. He wanted to be with me, but I felt like, Oh, you just did something wrong. Like you just, you knew you would mess up or like, I don't know what I was thinking. Just, I was little, I didn't know any better. So It was difficult, but now like we have the best relationship ever and we've talked about things like so, so deeply and I understand his perspective a lot. I read this book in high school. Um, It's called The 13th. I think Michelle Alexander is the author, Mm -hmm. but it's about like mass incarceration and, you know, just like how they made it into a doc. Mm -hmm. I watched the doc. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
it's like how they how it just how it affects like black and brown communities. Yeah. And when I read that book in high school, it was around the time he was just coming out and we were like starting to get a relationship together. And something clicked and I was like, oh, I was like, this isn't just a us thing. Like this is happening to like millions of people and it's systemic. And I was like, wow, like I fell into what they set up and it made me mad. And I was like, I really just need to get that chip off my shoulder. So once I did, it's like, we got so close and I look just like my dad. So it's literally like my twin, but we also act the same way, even though he didn't actively like raise me. And I think that's also really funny because it's like, there's no denying that you're my dad. Like we move the same, we eat the same stuff. We, our faces react the same way. That's really neat. your your father so your first so you got first dad and second dad i'm mm-hmm. curious did they have a relationship these days and when how old were you when your biological father got out of prison so they they do like they're very like co-parenty like cordial like they like comment on each other's stuff on facebook and everything like funny stuff like that but they're not besties by no means either it's not like you know when you see those blended family tiktoks and it's like oh my god the mom and the stepmom are like best friends when they get their nails done they're not that close (laughs) but like they're cool with each other because they knew each other before my second dad had was with my mom so there was already some type Mm -hmm. of like pre previous relationship it wasn't like a new person so my dad got out of prison for like 2013 or just in time for my eighth grade graduation. But I was being very stubborn and I didn't want him to go because I was so hurt. So he didn't go. Um, which I shouldn't have done that. I was just trauma response. Uh, but so he got out then. And then my mom passed away. So that was like eighth grade. Like he probably got out like May, June. And then my mom passed away in 2014, December, like early on into my freshman year of high school. So it was like he was out for maybe like a year and a half max and then it went from like oh we're just getting to know each other and my mom kind of like was forcing me to see him too because i was so very angry and she was like you need to let that go like you just let him try and if he does something then he does something she's like but don't you know hold all this against him Mm -hmm. i'm happy that she was doing that because if she let me just go and be stubborn like how i was being it would have been awkward and it was already awkward to like go from oh hey i'm just getting to know you to now it's like oh my mom passed away now i have to go live with you and it was just crazy. Was your mom um, s- sick? And did she, or did she like, I'm so sorry to hear that you lost your mom oh, at okay. that point in your life. And she sounds like an incredibly lovely human. I wish I had a chance to meet her. And I feel like I get to meet her through you. What, like, what happened to the extent that you want to share? And was she potentially trying to have you get closer to your biological father in preparation for that? I wish okay. I wish I do, but I, I have like a faith in like, it's not necessarily God. It's just kind of like, I think we're all set on like certain paths for certain reasons. And that probably would have happened, you know, no matter which way it would have turned like butterfly effect. Right. But I think subconsciously, like she was just very tired around the time she passed away. She passed away in a car accident. Um, she was tired. She was like working, her job, she was like an administrator at like a high school. And then she was working like a night job at a bar. So that I was old enough to see that like things were kind of hard. But I was like, you know, my dad's home now. Like my second dad, like we're cool. So I'm like, why are you? You know, I don't know what everybody's financial situations were to why she was working two jobs. But she was. 
So coming home from one of those night jobs, she got into a car accident. So it wasn't like, I really wish all the time that she was sick. And like, I had like a slow progression and it's like, oh, I know you were going to pass away. But I think like subconsciously or God or whatever the force was, I think she knew like she had to position things in a way because something was like, it's off, you know? Uh-huh. And it's like one day I just woke up and it was like, oh, I was like, what do I do? <laughs> like, what do I do? Where do I go? Um, and it was crazy because my dad wasn't, and he, he said he signed the birth certificate the day I was born, but he wasn't technically on my birth certificate when we found it. And I was like, I was like, now imagine if you weren't here. And there would have been no, there wouldn't have been any problems. I would have probably just went with my stepdad, whatever. But I was like, that's crazy because I'm looking at this paper and you weren't on there. Wow. So it's like, I just had my mom. So we had to like get that. We had to do like a DNA test and like prove to the government that he was my dad, which obviously he is. But it was just crazy. And you were like, look at us. We look alike. Yeah, no, we walked into the we walked into the office and the lady was like, Are you sure you want to pay to do this? She was like, I could tell you that that's your kid. Well, and it, we just had to do it logistically. But I was like, that's so crazy. Like yeah. I was like on paper, I was like an orphan because she just passed away and you were there. and I just felt so I was just so sad. I was like, Wow, like how does this happen? And it was just like very awkward. Then I was like, you know, my brother like I was with my brother and my mom, but it's like we have two different dads. So both of our dads wanted to take us. Yeah. So that separated us. And that was like weird too. Did you both go to we... two different places? Mm-hmm. Okay. So he went with we dad went... number two? Yeah. So we both went to live with our biological fathers. Got it. So then they that's how they were building a better yeah. relationship because we had to see each other and yeah. do all those things. But yeah, it was super crazy. That's crazy. So you're a fresh... It was a year after... And and by the way, like I, I, this thought also crossed my mind. I mean, you, what you were when you were describing first, kind of how there was maybe there always could could have been better management of um, your biological father, like when he was incarcerated. Like you were describing, like a crash course on empathy that you, as a young yeah. person, were grappling with. That obviously, like it's put you in a state as a as a young adult that you're incredible, incredibly empathetic. I think it's one of the most important qualities for a human to have, but. Um, I don't know if you want to speak on 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 that a little bit, but that that's not sort of lost on me. And I, I think that it's you don't wish for anyone to have gone through all this trauma, but I think the way you were articulating how you were thinking of the feelings of your father, it's like that's empathy. And for mm-hmm. a young, you know, for a young, for a young person, that's that kind of soft skill I alluded to earlier that I I find to be very impressive about you. And, and I'm like understanding more now why it's so strong and yeah yeah and i think too like it's if i i wish i had the words to like define empathy and like what i was feeling i just think for me what it was i was in a school like in a high school in a predominantly white area and there was like a good amount of like people of color but we all were like acting like the city like we were all like very self-segregated so when I, I was just in like advanced placement classes though, and that's how I found that book. And in those advanced placement classes, I was like the one brown kid in the room or it's like a brown kid, a black kid, whatever. It's always like two of us max. Um, and I was like, wow, if I wasn't in this class, challenging myself academically, because I'm so afraid of all this other trauma. Like I knew I wanted to be the first person in my family to go to college. So I'm like working really, really hard. And it's like, if I didn't work that hard or have that, like internal work ethic, I wouldn't have been in this class to read this book to feel that feeling of empathy. 
toward my father. Mm-hmm. And I could have just stood angry. I could have just been in a regular, I think it was like a history class or something like that. And I or English, it was English class. I could have been in a regular level English class, probably reading like Huck Finn or like whatever. And there's mm-hmm. nothing wrong with that. But it's like, I got exposed to that because of my other motivation. So I think it's weird, like how all these things in life kind of were like stepping stones for one another. So I'm very grateful for that teacher. I say it all the time. And I'm very grateful for like my, like that I wanted to learn that I didn't just like read the cliff notes on that book. You know, Mm -hmm. like I read it, I was invested in it. And I got to realize from that book that so many other people were feeling this way. And I got to understand the perspective of like people who were incarcerated. And then it clicked to me like, oh, this didn't just happen to me. And like life isn't just happening to us. And I think it's so easy to feel that way. And that's why being empathetic is really hard. So it's like, oh, I have this in my life. I have this. Like we have all these chips on our shoulders that people can't see or they can see. And, you know, we treat people that way accordingly. We just assume like, oh, whatever, like they can deal with it because I do. And I'm like, that's not really the case. Like, I'm like, we shouldn't treat people that way. We don't know what they're going through. You don't know how they're feeling. And even if you do, you still should approach them gently. Like, I don't think there's anything wrong with just being a nice, kind person. And I think that's like a big thing with empathy too. Like you treat people how you want to be treated. So the empathetic person is putting out good energy and healing energy and hoping that it comes back to them. And sometimes it doesn't. And then the empathetic person, I'm like, like, I hate when I have a long day and I run into people who are just like rude. Like the cashier was rude or like the somebody cut me off and they were rude. And I'm like, I'm trying so hard to be a good person. Yeah. <laughs> and the world is trying me. And even in those moments, I'm like, no, I'm like, don't get out of character. It's fine. Yeah. They might uh, be having a bad day. Well, I love what you just said. And one comment on that. And then, and then sort of a question for you. Um, I've, I've shifted. It's funny as a young, as a young adult, when I was driving around and someone cut me off, I would just flip them off. And and now it's I like, know that's and, what and my so, boyfriend does too. And and, and I'll like, be honest, scream. I'm a, when, I, when I was in my twenties, that's what I was doing. But I don't know if it was for me. It took being a father and realizing, you know, even when my daughter's not in my car, if I get cut off now, you know what I do? I go through like signs. I do peace. I do I love you, and I like <laughs> put it out the window. And then like the person like, and I've sometimes it doesn't work. Sometimes people are they're not in a good mood. But sometimes I've gotten people to be like, just kind of laugh and be like. All right. Yeah, and then I get the peace sign back. I'm like, all right, sweet. Like I got a peace sign back. And it's like, oh, like why? Because I realized when I did that, I was like, I was, I was allowing their negative energy to like, mm-hmm. you know, to get the better of me. And I was like, wait, yes. I'm not going to give this person power over me. And I feel like that you're very, you're on the advanced side of like woke in yeah. that regard. So good for you. Thank you. <laughs> I try to keep it composed. And that's for anything too, like a professor or, you know, sometimes if I have a boss who's like, telling you off about something, you know, and I've, I've always been like very composed and it's, I've learned it especially over time with my biological father. Cause he's so calm. Like yeah. nothing can make him sweat. Nothing will make him yell or scream. Like he has to be so mad. You know, if he's getting loud, like something crazy is happening. And I was like, I want to be like that. Cause my mom was the opposite. My mom was like, I will yell at you over everything. Like she was like a firecracker. Like if somebody cuts me off, like a pumpkin flipping the bird, like everything. Yeah. And I've learned that I just like the latter. Like I like the opposite yeah. side of the spectrum. Because like you said, I don't want anybody's energy to come into mine, especially bad ones. And I'm hoping I'm putting out good into you by not giving you the reaction that you want. Yeah, there you go. That's how you really win. So so talk about your your mom passes away your freshman and sophomore year, roughly, of high school? Freshman year. Yeah, it was freshman my year. freshman year. Okay. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, yeah, like sophomore. Yes, sophomore year. Because 2013, so, I graduated and went in to school. So, yeah. 2013, you graduated eighth grade. Understandably so. You're dealing with the trauma and the emotion of it. So, <clears throat> biological dad doesn't come to your eighth grade graduation, but you spend the next year building that relationship. <clears throat> your mom abruptly passes away, which is devastating. But you're in, if anything, I, I mean, talk a little bit, a bit more about the drive you had in high school. And mm-hmm. at that point in your life, with like everything around, like with the, the, the what, how big or, you know, broad, wide or narrow did you see it was your pathway towards success? And what was success? Like, what was, you're going to do well in school and you're going to graduate high school. Like, what was, you know, like, do, did you have a career in mind at that point? And mm-hmm. you, you alluded to, you wanted to be the first person to go to college. Talk a little bit more about those goals you had as you sort of yeah. marched your way through high school. Yeah. So like going into high school and I was, again, this is just something, some anatomy about me. Like, it's just odd. Like I was in eighth grade having like an identity crisis about like what my career would be. Cause I had so many people, like I had so many conversations with my mom and I was like, I want to make clothes. I want to be a fashion designer. I was like, I want to write books. And like both of those were shut down. Cause she was like, um, I don't know how to get you there. She, she doesn't know how to get... I already told her I want to go to college. She's already trying to figure out how to help me do that because nobody went. But then I'm telling her I want to do these like creative random careers. It's not like, oh, I want to be a doctor. And there's like a million books on this at that point. It's like, no, this is what I want to do. And she was like, you have to find something else. Um, maybe just be open-minded. Like She wasn't trying to shut it down all the way, but she was trying to be realistic and say, like, I don't have the um, resources. Let's talk to help you do her about in her own words. And she was like, why don't you do journalism? Like, you like reading magazines. She saw me with them all the time. I was decorating lockers with them. It's like, that's what those people do. Um, and I was amazed because I was like, I didn't know what that was. How would I? Like, I don't even... I can't list, like, colleges at this point. I don't know anything about anything. So that idea got put into my head and I just loved it. And I ran with it ever since. And I was like, yeah, I'll be a fashion journalist or a journalist for sure. Cause I was a great writer, which is why I wanted to write books. And I still do. Um, and I love clothes and I still do. So it just evolved. So I had a good idea of what I wanted to do in high school. And like, I knew I was like, I want to go to college for journalism. I knew I wanted to go out of state cause I did not want to live in Chicago. Like at that point, even before my mom passing away, I had been through so much stuff. I was like over it. And I was like, there has to be something better than this. Like, I'm like, I know there's a better place than this out there and no shade to Chicago. But I was like, I know there has to be something more that's not this traumatic all the time. So after my mom passed away and my mom was like very big on school too. Like she wanted me to be the first person to go to college. She wanted my brother to go to college. Like she would tell us all the time that school is the most important thing. It's like, what'll free you? Cause you can't get that taken away. Like all these other things that we have going on are out of our control. She's like, what you learn and what you have here is yours. Um, so I thought about that a lot after she passed away. So I remember one of my aunts telling me like, oh, I thought your grades were going to slip. And like me and my brother, both of our grades didn't slip that year. They were the same. Um, if not like a little better, I was doing track still. Like I was trying to still be in high school and like do the stuff that I wanted to do. But I was also like, dang, my mom would not want to see me slipping. So it was like very hard, like emotionally. I was like super tired. Like, cry- like I don't remember so much of that year. I just remember like, just I think I went into like autopilot and I was like, let me just do what she would have wanted me to do. Like 
And I thought, I think about that all the time too. Like, would I want to tell my mom about what I'm doing? And if the answer is no, then like, I don't do it. And I think yeah. that's also saved me from a lot of Hell situations yeah. too. Um, that, I just, so, yeah. I just want to say, I, I love the, that's very, that's perfect. I think that's actually a lesson that I found and for listeners that maybe hear, heard me say this before. Like when I had Mila, my daughter, mm-hmm. I decided like, as we were, as we've been raising her, like my, my, like if I'm any action I take in life, is she proud of the way I'm conducting myself? Exactly. If, if, you know, to be a nerd, like if it was committed to the blockchain and she could go and evaluate any interaction dad ever had with anyone would, you know, would she be proud of me? And it's like, if, if the answer is no, then it's like, don't take the action or, mm-hmm. or, or do something different. Or if you took the action, like apologize for it. Um, and I think what you just described is like, it reminds me of that, which is like, for you, it's like your mother. And I always use the words like North star, like your mom's like that North star, that like guy, yeah. like compass for you. Yeah, definitely. Cause she always wanted me to just go after my dreams, like whatever it was. So I was like, I can't stop now. (laughs) Um, So yeah, I just kept going. And I was like, still in the middle of like adjusting to living with my dad. And then my dad was getting remarried. And then my stepmom was pregnant. So then I was like, my sister had just been born. I love my sister. I think that was also just like God's timing too, because it's like, I was in a very sad place. And like, I had a little person who just wanted, she was so happy to have a big sister. Because before that, she does have two big sisters, but living in the house with only two older brothers. Mm-hmm. So now I see like my sister mirrors my personality and interests so much. And I think that's because the first few years of her life, she was seeing me in my prime and like high school and all the clothes I was wearing and all this and that. Um, and she also was like a healer to me too. Like she was just a fresh energy that had nothing to do with anything else I had experienced. So it's like a very mm. good environment for me to be in. It's like a, it's a baby. Like you can't be so yeah. sad around a baby. I'm seeing her walk and laugh and ask me like silly questions and I'm teaching her things. And I'm like, yeah. you're great. Like you're the perfect thing I needed. Yeah. You get <laughs> it. It's like it, ba- babies are tiring, but they're invigorating. They are both <laughs> taking yeah. care of a baby is a lot of work, but they, they breathe youth and exactly. life and optimism into you. <laughs> so she was, she was giving me a lot of life in that time. And I think cool. that also helped on my healing journey too. Nice. So talk about the decision of where to go to school, how mm-hmm. and, and was, you know, HBCU schools or there multiple schools on your radar. Was it important for you to go to school with black and brown people and not be one of just two in a classroom yeah. and, and t- you know, talk about that a little bit. And then obviously like what, you know, what that experience was like on campus. Yeah. So prior to being in high school and I only went to the high school I went to cause I tested in. Um, Cause it's a public school. So the neighborhood was like a predominantly white neighborhood. Um, and I just knew I wanted to go to a good school because I went, I went to a school in my neighborhood, then I probably wasn't getting into a good college or, or if I could, I wasn't getting the resources I needed. So I would have had to do a lot more by myself. And I knew I had no internal resources at home. So being in that environment, like that was my first time being around white people ever. My second dad's mom is white and he's biracial, but she has a bunch of black children. So I never like there was never like a microaggression or a racism or anything like that from her. Um, so that's just kind of like what I assumed out of life. Like my parents never had a conversation with me about like race or racism or like difference in cultures, like nothing. Um, so when I got to school, it was super diverse and I was around white people for the first time. I was around like Muslim kids for the first time, immigrants from like 
Ethiopia, like every, like I was meeting every type of person imaginable and it was so cool. But then that was also my first time experiencing like real, like in your face racism or microaggression. And I was like, what is this? Like, what year is it? Like, why am I dealing with this? Why is this okay? Why is, you know, this teacher not checking this? But if we do something as like POC, then we're getting screamed at. It was, I was noticing like those things. Can you give um, an example? Um, yeah, like, like dress code, like okay. it's high school. It's like, you could kind of wear whatever you want. And like the white girls would could wear like very short shorts and not ever get dress coded. But if we did, then we were asked to put on gym shorts and it was just crazy. So administration microaggression. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I was seeing it from like a very high level and I'm like, she's literally wearing something short. Like I, there's a person next to me wearing something shorter than me or a tank top or whatever, like the dumb, yeah. like, cause even those are like sexist things yeah. and dress code and whatever else. Yeah. And it just wouldn't fly. And I was like, this is crazy. Or I would even hear the, the way they would standard. talk. Like the double standard, even if I'm walking past a group of white students and I'm hearing the way they talk about something and I'm like, that's crazy. Um, it was just like really hard. And I was like thinking about college and I was like, I'm already first gen. I was applying to school um, when Trump was first running. And I was like, I don't know who's going to be president when I'm in school, but I'm very scared um, because just the way people were acting with him, with his like run, I was like, they might still act like this. Even were if there he are a lot of people you were in, in, in your high school that were pro Trump. There was or- like two. Okay. There was two, but there's probably more. There was probably more, but <laughs> there, there were, were two, two that were loud, <laughs> loud and proud. <laughs> okay. Um, and that was also my thing too, because I'm like, you've been so cool. With and that's how it was, because remember, none of us thought Trump was going to get elected, but the, there was way yeah, more. Literally, lurkers. everybody thought it was a joke. <laughs> everybody yeah. thought. It was so there were loud there people, was... but there was a lot more people who voted for him that were quiet. So then all quiet, of a sudden, you're and... like, wait. How many I'm white like, people who, vote I'm, for Trump? Or people in general. <laughs> or just people in general. Of different people. Actually, yeah, that's true. Like, that's true. Yeah. Yes. So that was my thing. But it's like, it was crazy because as we're applying to schools, it's like I'm seeing kids who I was fine with like for four years, like all of a sudden wearing like MAGA hats. And now you're not talking to me as much. You're like, you're talking to me kind of weird. And it's not like a microaggression, but it's just off, yeah. you know? Mm-hmm. And I was like, damn. I'm like, that sucks. Like, I just, I don't know. I wasn't like, I guess like a little bubble. I I wasn't around people who could be prejudiced to me. So I just hadn't experienced it. And when I did, it was like so much at once. And I was like, okay, yeah, I don't want to be at a predominantly white institution. Like I just couldn't. And I did apply to some, I applied to Clark and Hampton because I had a teacher who went to Hampton and she was the one who was like, yeah, maybe HBCUs. This is like one of the only black teachers I had mm-hmm. ever. And she was like, yeah, maybe you guys should look into HBCUs because things are getting crazy. When she was just saying that with the election, she was like, I'm just saying, she's like, just make sure wherever you end up, you're in a safe space because a lot of us were first gen and we were already going to be far away. So she's like, don't put yourself in a scary place that's far away because we can't come save you. Um, so that was like a big train of thought too. So all the schools I did apply to that were PWIs, they had like um like a diversity percentage of like 15 or higher. That was like my minimum. But that's still like not a lot of people of color no. at all at the school. So Clark was really my number one in Syracuse in New York, mm-hmm. which are two completely different. Yeah, but I know why, right? For journalism. Yeah, yeah, for both journals. of them, had yeah. great journalism yeah. programs, competitive yeah. programs, great resources, great yeah. student engagement. I wanted a traditional experience. So those were like 
essentially core same things. You see why I wanted to be there. Mm-hmm. So those are my top two. I applied to schools really early by like November-ish. I did like all the early admission stuff because I was like, I need to know now where I'm going to go. Yeah. Um, and then I got into Clark on Christmas. Christmas Day, I opened my admissions letter from Clark. Aww. And I was like, yeah, it's such a cute story. And I was like, yep, I already knew I was going to go. And that's what my second dad was saying. She, he was like, because he is biracial. He was like, I don't think, he's like, even if you get into Syracuse, he's like, I don't think it's going to be a tough decision for you. He's like, I know you. And I was like, no, it is. Like, I was given everything a fair chance. But I think, like, my heart knew, like, oh, no. Like, yeah. that wasn't going to happen. So the experience on campus was amazing. Definitely everybody on campus doesn't look like me. Like, I'm not the look of an average HBCU student. But there are many Latinos, there are many Afro-Latinos on campus. So a lot of Caribbean people, a lot of people like culturally, we were very similar. But then even there were a lot of people like culturally, they were just from Chicago and we were very similar. Culturally, they were inner city. Like a lot of my friends ended up being from New York or like Compton, California, Mm -hmm. like just like other tough cities. Inner city from other places, New York, LA. We all found each other and we're like, yeah, yeah, we're out here. We're being smart. Um, so I had the best time of my life. Like Clark, the best decision I've ever made. And nice. it probably will be for the yeah. rest of my life. Qu- question about those friends that you made, those relationships, you know, friendships you forged at Clark. Did you find that a lot of students and, and in general, did did HBCU schools um, see an uptick in um, in applicants due to mm. Trump? I don't know. I know like a lot of the people I ran into had similar thought processes, but a lot of them, their family had gone to HBCUs for generation. Like if not Clark, they were legacies. They were legacies. So it was just like an expectation. So it's like my family, it's like, they didn't know what a college was, what a PWI was, what a HBCU was. They were just happy to see me go. My dad was freaking out. My biological dad, he's like, you're going so far away. Um, but I don't, I don't know if that was like the driving reason for all of them. I do think like as time went on, like my first year was his first year of presidency. I think as that, um, his reign as president went on, it, there was. And there was also like, while I was in school, I think my second year, it's like Beyonce performed at Coachella and that whole Beachella was like HBCU homecoming themed. So there was a big increase there. And then when Kamala was running, there was a huge increase because she went to Howard. Um, so it, there's a lot. And then also, even before Kamala running, just like what happened with George Floyd, like a lot of people were like, okay, let me maybe go back into like my safe spaces. Like let us retract and like make sure we're putting ourselves in situations where we won't run into this as much or hopefully not at all. Mm-hmm. So I think it all played a role. But that first year, I don't think that was like a, a big driver. I just okay. think we were all were like, damn. Like we were on campus every day, like, woo. Yeah. But then again, I also met people on campus who were like hard Republicans mm-hmm. and very conservative because they grew up with a lot of money, like generations of money. And mm-hmm. they're very black and proud, but very conservative and like mm-hmm. voted Brett too. So, you know, yeah. it's crazy. Like it's, um, it was interesting. Yeah. I got to see diversity beyond a look. Yeah. That's really interesting. Did you... Did, have you ever written about that? And and I'm curious, like what you did write about and, and you were very involved on campus, but I'm just curious, like that experience, is that something you have or would ever write about? Like just my HBCU experience in general? Yeah. Well, or... the experience of just the people aren't binary, right? It's not like, yeah, the, 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 you and I have talked about this a bunch, right? When we've, we've collaborated on like DEI topics and sort of like mm-hmm. t- diversity, it's like, 
it's so complex. It's it's yeah. two two people that could have exactly this the same white or black skin tone could be other than their skin color a million times different yeah. in a million different ways. And it's sort of like that kind of diversity, like just the complexity of diversity, right? The the rich affluent legacy black family and the inner city. Uh, you know, uh, Latina that comes into school, like, yeah. like and, and just like in, in commonalities between and differences between like, to me, it just, I, you have a really interesting perspective and therefore, especially based on the way you write, like a, a pretty sharp pen and being able to make sense of it all. So I'm just curious, yeah. like, have you written about I that? Have it. Yeah. Yeah. I, and you're making me feel like I should, <laughs> am I inspiring I you to I hope you yeah, do <laughs> you are because I talk about it a lot with one of my close friends who I met down there and he's from uh, Minneapolis Minnesota and we grew up basically the same way like same amount of siblings he lost his dad I lost my mom like we're very very similar struggles um but we talk about it all the time because we didn't expect everybody to be the same but we didn't expect people to be on like a conservative spectrum at all either like we were just yeah. like huh like what is this? Um, and we learned a lot about that. But I also learned, um, I learned that like some of the ways I was thinking wasn't the best either. Like I remember one time there was a, like there was like a party on campus and we have like a, a pretty open campus that connects to neighborhoods, like houses. So there was like, I guess people there who didn't go there. It was like a block party. Somebody started shooting. I heard it and cause it was like near my dorm. And I'm like, Oh, I'm like, that's crazy. But I had grew up hearing gunshots all the time. So I don't really flinch much anymore. Like, I'm just like, oh, like if it doesn't sound too close, I'm like, that's crazy. And then you just keep the conversation going. You don't call the police. You don't do anything is what I've grown up on. My Some of my friends, though, especially like I remember talking to one of my friends at Spelman, she was so shooken up because she had grew up in like a rural area, like I think Virginia or something like that. She was like, that's so crazy. She was like, I've never... Didn't even hear it. She was like, I've never been around anywhere that there was a shooting. And I was like, girl, it's fine. Like, nobody died. Like, it's yeah. literally okay. And I felt I was so desensitized. Yeah. And I was like, that's wrong. Like, I don't need to expect people to think that that's normal because I had a traumatic yeah. upbringing. And that's when I was learning from them too. Like, there's mm. a way to seek peace and like set a, a standard for like what you allow. Mm. And just because you're familiar with it doesn't mean that it has to be familiar forever. And, and you should kind of have it a, as a, as a yeah, yeah exactly so i was learning in that sense of like diverse perspectives and understanding them a lot better like maybe we don't agree on everything and maybe we vote differently but like i am learning a lot from you and your experience and yeah. that was very helpful just for me as i'm learning people yeah so the next thing I want to talk to you about is then a pandemic happens while you're still in school yeah so <laughs> I want to hear what that was like, uh, but also I think the silver lining, as you have a very strong silver linings playbook, the silver lining for you was like, you could be, everyone could be anywhere. Everything was virtual. Mm -hmm. And so you started popping up in the world as a journalist, even more so. Yeah. Um, and I remember when I first started seeing your byline and seeing what you're doing at, at even at Boston O and, you know, Boston business journal. And I was like, Oh wow, cool. Like sharp young reporter. And then like, come to find out, like you were even still like, you hadn't even graduated. In Atlanta. Yeah. And you were in Atlanta. So talk a bit about like what it was like on campus, but then also talk about like how you turned it into an opportunity. Yeah. So I don't, it was crazy. It was it happened really around spring break and I was supposed to go study abroad that week. So I was going to go to Paris. We're going to leave the country for the first time. 
going to go to Paris for this like black film class that we had film history. So we're going to go like make documentaries, like talk to, you know, use my elementary oh. French that I learned, all those <laughs> things. So they were like, oh no, like we can't go because COVID's getting really bad over there. And we're like, oh, what? Like spent the whole semester waiting for this one week. Fine. So we end up just spending the semester. We do like a staycation. So all that money that we were going to spend in Paris, we just go do like pop-up museums and like whatever else in Atlanta. And we just hang out and we're like, whatever. And we're like, yeah, we're going to extend the break for a week. Like it's getting bad and people are going to travel back from like Miami or whatever. So we want to give you guys time before being in classes was the update. Then like the second update was like, actually, no, you need to leave campus. Like if you're on this campus right now, pack and leave like for the semester. And it was insane because it's like a lot of the people who go to park are not local. So you have people like me from Chicago, my friend from Minneapolis, some of my friends from New York. And it's like, you're telling us to like get up and move all of our stuff in a week or less. And we can't. And then it's like, fights are crazy. Then you don't know who has what. It was like just so, so crazy. So I went back home, marched, stood through August and finished school. That was like junior spring of junior year, finished school, like just bonded with family a lot. Enjoyed that. Then I was telling my dad, I was like, I need to go back. And school was still going to be virtual for my senior year. But I was like, I don't want to go to school here. Like, I'm like, I can't. I just don't have yeah. my routine or my space. Yeah, you need that I have a bunch in. of siblings. Yeah. I have a bunch of siblings. A lot of family just, you know, they think like, oh, I'm just at home. So like they can talk to me a lot. And it's like, I can't focus. Um, he was like, well, if you want to do that, you have to pay for it. Because tuition is what was paying for my dorm. And that's a loan. <laughs> so he was like, if you want an apartment, you need to pay for it. So I started doing DoorDash <laughs> and like Uber Eats because I didn't want to work an in-person job because I was like, that's gross. And all I knew before was retail. I was like, I'm not working retail right now. Yeah, been um, there. So I just, yeah. yeah. So I was yeah. like, oh, that's nasty, like COVID. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, I just yeah. started doing DoorDash and DoorDash and Uber Eats supplied my <laughs> senior year, got me a nice apartment with one of my friends. So I did that. And then but at that point, people were starting to get very used to like being on Zoom more and doing video. You know, we had already spent like half a semester doing virtual classes. So they were kind of ready for fall. So a lot of them were like asynchronous. Like you don't even have to log on to a meeting or sometimes it's like once a week. So I was working like I was working a lot at night. Nights I did like DoorDash Uber Eats from like 8 to 12, 8 to 1 in the morning. During the day though, I was in class getting ahead because it was all asynchronous. So I was like doing all my work early. Or doing a lot of freelance reporting work, which is what I was doing before the pandemic too. I think it was like 2019, I got a byline in the nation. That was like my first national byline. Then after that, I got another one, like right before the pandemic. Um, So I was in like a really good place career-wise, like going into the pandemic. Like my name was out there. I had like a lot more credibility than like a school newspaper, magazine. I was just working hard. And then... I was also applying to jobs because I was like, I need me craving that stability. I'm like, (laughs) I need a job after graduation. Like I refuse to be that journalism major who ends up working in retail again after graduation. You need it right away. Yeah. Because a lot of us do. And there's nothing wrong with like being in (laughs) that stepping stone job, but I did not want to do it. So I was working so hard. Um, Started freelancing for a business publication, got like more into it that when an alum was like Mm -hmm. operating and she just wanted me to write because she saw my stuff on the school magazine. I was like, I don't know. <laughs> I, like, I don't know about, about this. this. I don't understand business. Like I kind of felt like I wasn't smart enough. Um, but she was like, no, you're great. Like you're a great writer. I'll teach you. And then that's really how I got a lot of my portfolio to apply to the Boston Business Journal's MBI NO. 
And I had somebody else in my network that I freelanced for, for like a project at Pointer who introduced me to the editors at Boston O. So then that's how I got that job. And then I was remote anyway. So I was like, I could start working now. Like they were telling me if you want to start after graduation, I was like, no, I don't want to do Uber Eats no more. Like <laughs> I'll start work yeah. right now. So I started in March and then I graduated in May. So I had that job like really early on into spring semester. And I was like, like I got the job, I got the degree. Like I was very happy. That's amazing. A um, couple, couple of things. Well, one, I, I, I've been, I, I've been there with uh, graduating, being like, okay, so now all these loans are up, and I stayed on campus because I was like, I was working at a bar, but I was like, if I used all the money I make two nights working at the bar, all my money will go to rent. So I'm like, all right, I'll stay living on campus. Um, but I remember when I got my my job, and and they were like, you know, you can you can start. Um, you can start right away, um, but you or you can start in three months. And I was like, I'll start right away. <laughs> I was like, yeah, because like, I, I, I don't have a car, and you, I need to drive to this office, so I need to buy a car, and everything's and like I need money. Um, so a couple, a couple questions for you. One is, I'm curious about that first byline in the nation. What was it about? Mm, it was about the reproductive justice gap at HBCUs because I was the vice president of the Planned Parenthood, it's called Planned Parenthood Generation Action, is like okay. their co college clubs that they have. And so what Planned Parenthood does is they supply us with money and like pamphlets, like condoms, or money to go like host events about whatever, sexual, anything on campus. So like I was doing a lot of that. And like that was like very normal for me to talk about. Like my mom talked to us about sex early on and like in an inner city, like my mom had me at 16. So clearly like people around me were like very sexually active. Um, but in in the South, in my lovely Bible Belt state of Georgia, they were looking at me crazy for walking around that campus talking about Planned Parenthood and mm. safe sex and getting tested. And it was just a very Christian school, Christian yeah. Baptist private school. So they were like, okay, like you can have the club, but like not too much. Um, so they just didn't some of the events that we were trying to do just weren't getting approved. And it's like, if we didn't get the classroom approved, we can't host the event. Cause like, where are we going to host it? Um, so we kept running into like a lot of hurdles. And then some of the other people at the HBCU campuses were running into the same thing, yeah. but the girls on the PWI campuses running the clubs had no problem. And I was like, Hmm, I wonder <laughs> if this is an administration issue at our schools because a lot of HBCUs are private, so they can do that. And then a lot of them are Christian or Catholic. So they don't really want us to talk about that and do all those things. And they don't um, aggravate the donors. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The whole yeah. all the politics. Yeah. So yeah, that's yeah. what it that's what it turned into being about because I was going through a problem getting events approved. Um, and also seeing like people's reaction to me talking about it on campus. So I got with the other HBCU campus leads and asked them if they would be down to interview. And then I pitched it to the nation because I saw a tweet like, um, we're looking for like student. It was about they needed a story on student movements. Um, and I was like, oh, I got one. This is great because nobody's talking about this problem at HBCU. So that was really cool because it was a personal experience, but also was really affirming because I was like, I do have like a bomb eye for news and I do know how to work and do these things. Because um, I had a professor, he was like, you know how many grown journalists I know who who would love a byline in the nation? He's like, you're 19. And I was like, I was like, I just, I wasn't even looking at it like that. I literally didn't even know that much about the nation when I pitched mm -hmm. them. I just knew it would be a good story. That's and true. then as I looked them up, I was like, oh, that's the oldest weekly magazine in the country. Like I kind of did a thing. I didn't even know. Yeah. I was just like, it's a good idea. You, you want just, it? You just chase a good story. Yeah. Yeah. 
That's really cool. You you also mentioned something about you know business, and you were like, I I don't really know business, right? And and the reality mm-hmm. is like, as as we've all as we all find out, like no one really does. And there's a, there's a phrase like, well, we're all faking it till we make it, and like it, you know. And then there's the you know the words imposter syndrome, which I've felt and, and consistently in my career. And you you kind of alluded to that yourself. Like I'm curious, like can you talk a bit about your about imposter syndrome and just like getting in and in, in pulling back the veil on business. And for, you know, for young people listening, like what's your, you know, what's your perspective on like, Oh, like if you don't know something, well, the reality is like you do belong, you know, because I think we yeah. can both be vulnerable, like you and I, and anyone can be vulnerable and like feel at times imposter syndrome. I certainly have in, in some instances still do. Um, how do you, how do you overcome that? How have you overcome that? And like, what's your sort of any mantra as you kind of overcome that? Yeah. I just, I just tell myself like, just go for it all the time. Like, even if I don't know something fully, that doesn't mean that you don't have a good idea or something to contribute to that space. So I just try to like constantly put myself in new spaces. And then again, this is like uh, probably a result for me always moving around and being in new spaces. I put myself in new spaces to learn. And then as soon as I have like the second that I have an idea to contribute, I contribute it. And sometimes they'll be like, no, this was already done, this and this. And they give me a whole history lesson. I'm like, oh, cool. Didn't know that. Thank you. Then sometimes it's like so innovative and like the most amazing thing that business or tech person may have heard in a lot in a while. And I'm like, wow, I just, it was just an idea. Just like the story I pitched to the nation. It was just a thought. Um, But I think I have like very powerful and So I try to like learn, analyze, contribute when I can. And also just be open. Like I'm very open-minded to somebody being like, that's already been done and here's this. And I don't feel offended or, you know, like, oh, like I'm so dumb. I should have known that or I should have known better, you know, because I'm I'm trusting myself that I'm putting myself in environments that will teach me, especially in the business space because there's always so much changing that like people really don't know what's going on all the time. But what they do know well, like, everybody has like a niche, mm-hmm. you know, we're in business. We really know like the branding, the media side of business. A lot of people know nothing about it. Mm-hmm. Am I a numbers girl? No, <laughs> you know, like who knows what somebody's revenue is or whatever else. I, I can't tell you what I need to know about that, but I learn over time I've learned. And that's just what I would say, like any new field or any intimidating field, like just constantly put yourself in rooms that challenge you and just tell yourself that it's fine to contribute. Yeah. Like you should have like blind confidence and faith in your ability to have a good idea. Cause otherwise you wouldn't have wanted to be in that space. You wouldn't like have even that. been curious. Yeah. If I were to summarize that, it's sort of like be confident, put yourself in rooms, challenge yourself. And naivete can be a strength because at the end of the day, we're, there's always things we all are sort of like lesser informed on. So like turn your naivete mm-hmm. into a strength. Cause maybe your fresh perspective brings an idea that no one else thought of. But then the also the other thing you said too is like, but have the humility that if it's not, if if someone gives you a history lesson, all right, fine. But if it, over time, taking that sort of optimistic confidence, you know, yeah. with maybe levels of naivete, that's where that's that's where new ideas and new insights and fresh perspectives can come in and permeate and shift culture, which is actually what I, I wanted. Like, I want you to talk a little bit about your, your generation, right? The, the Gen Z, the Gen <laughs> Z worker. And like, is this, you know, is, do you find your, you know, how is your mindset? Do you feel 
that you're willing to, to state like maybe representative of your peers and just like in general, like, how do you, what do you, what do you feel about, cause we talked to you and I, I appreciate your perspective um, from just being from a different part of the country, different you know, cultural background, but, and also, you know, being Gen Z, um, but talk a little bit about sort of generation Z and, and what do you think sort of is happening as sort of Gen Z is coming into its own? I love Gen Z <laughs> and I don't think I love it because I'm a part of the generation. I just genuinely think we're a very funny, um, interesting, bold group of people. And I think we kind of just grew up on being able to share whatever thought we had, you know, in a second on Twitter, on Facebook, Tumblr, whatever it was. So now that we're kind of coming into our own and coming of age, we're entering workspaces. A lot of us are graduating college or have graduated college. The workforce is getting that energy of people just being like, I don't know much about this, but I have an idea. And they're not used to it. They're used to like the, you know, fresh out of college person, maybe fetching coffee or kind of being quiet and and timid and learning. And a lot of this, some people in this generation, of course, are, but like blanket statement, a lot of this generation is just like very vocal about their ideas, about their boundaries, about their expectations, their salary, wants and needs. Like if they don't like a company, they will go gladly tell a friend that, yeah, I didn't like working there. And a lot of older generations wouldn't because it would be like, okay, if you leave, you leave, don't say anything like hush hush. And we're just not that generation. We're uh, information generation is what I like to think of us. We share information well and we capture it faster. So it's, it's like a very cool space to be in. And I think I, I'm very like stereotypically Gen Z. Like when you see those Gen Z work memes on TikTok, like that's very much me and I love them. But I love that it's like a common theme for our generation because we're shifting like a work culture for generations to come. And like our parents and even your parents, I'm sure had to deal with like a lot of like unhealthy work environments that shouldn't have been around for as long as they did. And it's taking our more louder generation or more, hey, I don't have to be that loud about it at work, but let me go leave a review on Glassdoor or LinkedIn. And now everybody's going to know what my experience was, even if I'm anonymous. And we just never, nobody had that before. So it's a very cool space to be in work-wise. And I think we're we're hardworking. A lot of us are in the creator economy or freelancing or doing what I was doing. Like I was freelancing, doing Uber. Like I was doing my own thing. We're big on like, if we don't like the opportunity, we'll make our own. And I think that's also so cool. And I'm just obsessed, to be yeah. honest. Like I, I think we're like a catalytic generation. And I think the generation after, like Mila's age or my sister's age, like they're gonna be the coolest group of like young women or just young people because they had us right before. Mm-hmm. So you'll notice like younger people now, they're more expressive. Our kids are letting our p- parents are letting their kids paint their nails no matter what their mm-hmm. gender is. Like so we're we're getting like a lot of like bold I am myself people into the mm-hmm. world mm-hmm. it's only gonna get better because people are yeah. like no nah, like cut the BS <laughs> yeah that's awesome if if uh if my father could have been involved a part of the gen gen Z in during his 37 years at UPS I'm sure his hips and his knees would thank him because the exactly the amount, the amount, the amount, like I, I just when you said that I immediately thought of my dad and like the like the boomer generation like working um they work so less, hard less than great you know um more you know oftentimes like labor oriented situations where like they almost like almost at times treated like cattle um yeah and- it's like you have to come work overtime <laughs> yeah. you have to or we'll fire you yeah 
And that's all you just had to listen. Right. And now it's like, well, let me record you saying this to me, boss. Yeah. Now do you feel that confident about your decision? No, because it's yeah. wrong. <laughs> well, that, that's interesting. And like, as I'm going to, I'm kind of going to riff off of this conversation a little bit before we get into like the, the final, the final question we like to hit on. And, and I'm, I'm, I'm feeling like we're edging towards like a web three conversation. Cause like the words power mm-hmm. to the people come to mind where it's like, Literally. generationally speaking, younger people are like, in the, in the other word that comes to mind, transparency, like young, like younger people want to, they're going to be transparent. They want to hold themselves and others accountable and they're willing to like be bold and, and share information. And like, so the, you know, blockchain comes to mind and, and, and sort of, you know, the future of the internet and like where we're going in a web three world, which is like web three can be this, you know, it has very different components, but I think in where I'm going with, with this question is the, the part of web three that's really focused on sort of transparency decentralization um you know the the end of sort of like these 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 platforms that that dominate and attention and and sort of monetize our our attention and 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 our data um that's all shifting and and i wonder if and i'm just curious like your thoughts on that shift and and do you feel like generationally it's just a matter of sort of the maturity of you know, because I think I think millennials sort of like I'm a millennial, yeah. and, and we're kind of like tucked in, like in between, full. and we're sort of like some of us can pull. I can definitely pull, and re- re- I can relate both ways, but I could you know lean and and kind of relate more and more with with Gen Z, and I feel like as 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 Gen Z matures, and as you put it, like the next generation, like and then you know Mila's and your sister's generation come up. It's like at a certain point, you can just see it. You can see like. Oh, there's going to be a new internet. Like there's going to, it's going to be more decentralized and people yeah. are going to go more and have these, like the experiences they seek. They're going to, they're going to want a social contract with those experiences that feels appropriate and reasonable and is, is just and fair. Uh, mm-hmm. So, so to, you know, talk about that a little bit. Yeah, I think I love the Web3 space too, but I think I love the creator economy and the Web3 space and what Instagram and like social media has done for people. Because again, it allows people to live their own lives and create their own mini worlds. And then maybe you monetize those worlds too, which is even better. Because now it's like, I don't even, maybe I don't get the job after graduation. Maybe I just go big on TikTok. You know, and that's okay too. Or maybe I go make that Web3 startup because nobody's in this space. Like everybody's in this space, but there's so much to be done that there's a lot more that I could bring here that's, you know, just going corporate after graduation. So I think the Web3 space is going to be a transition of like those kids who were like on like those hoverboards and they were like so into like the future of things. Those are also the kids who are like playing Fortnite and like being in the metaverse. When those kids are in charge of like what Web3 will look like, I think it's going to be so just and so equitable and so like focused on making sure people, if you want to make money here, you can. If you want this to be a safe space, we have violation laws and codes, you know, online that we didn't have before, you know? And I just, I see it all coming into like a very big like snowball. And I'm excited for it to like crash because I think it'll be like confetti when it explodes like i think it's going to be so beautiful because people are realizing like they have the power to do and create what they want and i don't think any we've never been empowered to do that it's like go get a good job you know retire marry whatever the circle of life people have told it no longer is like the standard 
people are encouraged to do so many things and also like encouraged to not judge each other doing those different things, which I think is even cooler. So I imagine the the web three, it's already booming, but I imagine as like more young people enter the space, like I want to give it like 10 years, it's going to look like completely different than what we see it as now. Yeah. Yeah. Well said. One, um, one other question too, before we get into the final one, I'm, I'm just curious, like what if, I don't know if any of the ideas that are being supported and, and that are being developed like within HBCU founders initiative are web three or web three adjacent or just in general, like any, any you'd want to point to, um, that yeah. you feel like are promising or, or maybe, you know, they're, they're from, you know, young, like Gen Z, you know, black and brown founders, et cetera. Like mm-hmm. any, any you'd like to share? There is one, there's this company called Novus. Um, and he is, he went to Norfolk state and then I believe he had a job at Microsoft and he had like a lot of crypto investments very early on into the buzz. And he liquidated those investments and put in his two weeks at Microsoft to build that company. Um, and what it does, it's like a crypto security company. Like I think what it does is it, and I could be wrong, so we may have to fact check this, but my understanding of the concept is that it helps stop like those phishing scams because there's cybersecurity made as so, you know, there's like a million mm-hmm. cybersecurity startups for web two. They don't mm-hmm. exist yet for web three because mm-hmm. we don't know what the rules are in those spaces. We don't know what is illegal. We don't know, you know, it's all so decentralized that even if somebody does steal from you, you can't even find the person who did it like legally. <laughs> so he's trying to be at the prevention aspect of that to make sure like if you're putting money into this new and evolving space, it should be secure. And that's what his startup does. And then there's this cool. other one that some, somebody's working on called Fitted. And it's basically like a mood board. Like if you're a stylist or you're just a fashion enthusiast and you want to like kind of plan out outfits in advance, or maybe you don't have the pieces yet. You want to see how they look next to each other. That's what you do. But then he also is kind of building in this like metaverse AR concept where he wants people to be able to try on the clothes on like an avatar that is their dimensions before they buy them. So you can have a realistic understanding of how clothing would look on you first. And I thought that was just so amazing because I'm I not think surprised you retail, did with your with your fashion. Oh, yeah, I <laughs> right. But I was like, retail always kind of gets so behind. Like all retail has is like an app, maybe like good social media presence, you know, like a lot of these brands, but nobody's doing that in yeah. like the concept of web three or AR. And I like that he is. That's cool. It's like mind blowing. That's cool. You know, it's interesting in the different waves of innovation in the last 15, 16 years I've been in tech it's especially high-end retail fashion actually end up being late adopters often. Like for example, like this is a, like there's a company called create the group that came about in about 2010, 2011, they in 2010, 2011, think about that only 12 years ago to help high-end fashion brands bring their catalogs online with websites. Yeah, that's what I'm because saying. They, they, they didn't want to bring their show because they didn't want to bring down the level of quality and experience in their physical brick and store. mortar to to the web. So there's always a bit of so historically there's been a bit of a reluctance and or hesitation from re, from from certainly high end fashion. And so what's interesting is it shifted like it's starting to i've noticed it it shifted a little bit when i was in los angeles in the mid 2010s and there were like some some retailers and brands that were like jumping into ar early because and it was almost like too early and so uh it's interesting that's that's a really that's a really interesting 
business. And then um, Web3 security is going to be huge. And that's a really wise, sort of prudent sort of area to, to explore. Yeah. So we'll have to we'll have to keep tabs on the HPCU uh, Founders Initiative uh, companies that that y'all support. And yeah, and, and people. That, yeah. I was going to say people can follow yeah. HBCUFI on Instagram and you'll see all the stuff that the founders do. Even when they leave the program, we're always nice. posting their updates if they win a grant or they're in Techstars or whatever else they end up doing next. We're always updating people because you got to see where they came from. And yeah. Too. Awesome. So follow on Instagram. It's What's the handle? HBCUFI. There you go. Nice and simple. HBC. Yeah. Bye, folks. Um, final question we love to ask our guests is a challenge they have for listeners. Do you want to share yours? Yeah. Oh, my challenge is I'm so hardworking. And if you take away anything from this podcast, it should be to like go harder. But also, don't go too hard that you neglect like human aspects of yourself. And I'm very good for that. Like I'll work like all night or, you know, I'll skip a meal or I'll be like, Oh, I plan to go to the gym, but like, I'm so into writing this article. Like I just won't do it. You know, like I'll, I'll go next time. And it's easy to like do that. Right. Or it's like, Oh, I won't watch a movie with my partner right now. Like we can do it tomorrow. Let me finish this work. But I think if you let work, I love work. I love that my work is rewarding and that I'm in a field that I love and I want everybody to be in a field that they love, but don't love work so much that you don't love yourself. Like I'm working on like making time to like eat better and not just like snack at the computer. I'm working, I'm going to Pilates now. Like I'm trying to find different active things to do that like allow me to like look forward to something outside of work and that make me want to close the laptop and be like, this can get done tomorrow. And I think we all need to work on that, especially like post pandemic, we're working from home and it's like a lot easier to stay on longer and do things. And like, instead of us being like glued to our phones now, I feel like we're glued to like our laptops and our screens um, and working a little too much. So that would be my challenge is to find a balance. It's hard because I'm not good at it either, but I challenge others to do it and hold me accountable to it. There we go. Let's hold each other accountable together. Um, Miranda, I could go with you for hours, hours longer. Uh, really appreciate you taking all the time today and and sharing so much of your your background and so many words of inspiration for for listeners. Uh, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for having me. You know, I love talking to you. So I knew this would be <laughs> nothing but amazing. Amazing. Well, I'm glad. I'm glad that uh, I'm glad that we did this, and looking forward to sharing it with the with the community of listeners. Talk soon. Yes, I am too. Bye. All right. Take care. Cheers. Cheers, Boston.